I uh, bring greetings from uh, Westminster Presbyterian. It was good to, good to be with them uh, the other day and to, to worship with them. It's uh, been a long time that I had been there, and uh, it was good to see the old family uh, at, uh, at Westminster. And thanks to Justin for coming. I know that he uh, gave a great challenge and reminded us that, uh, reminded you all that we have the privilege as we gather here in worship at gathering at Mount Zion and worship, worshiping with the church triumphant, uh, with those who have gone before us, even our beloved Evars and others in this church whom we have lost. And it's a comfort indeed. Before I left, uh, we were working our way through Isaiah 53, that great servant song uh, that actually starts in 52. And we looked the first Sunday at the first two stanzas, if you will, and have been working our way down. And today we come to verses 7 through 9. And of course, as we just sang uh, Psalm 22, uh, remember that while these are the words of David uh, that we sing, in that familiar, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, Psalm? Um, of course, they're the words that we recognize on the lips of our, of our Savior, of, of Jesus, um, who is enduring that reproach. And the prophecy of the reproach that we just sang of um, from David, but on the lips of Jesus, we can hear Jesus, if you will, saying the words that we just sang. Uh, They're prophesied here at this point in the servant song, Isaiah 53 and verses 7 through 9. Let me read the text for us. <clears throat> and you'll remember uh, uh, the, the text uh, a couple weeks ago. We, we thought about Huper uh, on behalf of that he was, he was bruised for our iniquities. He was crushed for uh, our sins. Uh, by his stripes, uh, we are healed. You'll remember all that. Uh, verses 7 through 9, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Well, I want us to think today about, in these three short verses, that which happened, if you will, to our Lord. The things that they say happened to him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He was slaughtered. He was buried. He was cut off. And let's just work through that knowing the story. We know where this story is heading, even in singing Psalm 22 a, we hear it. It, it. it becomes fresh to us in the song and in the hearing of our Lord there upon the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then, though the, the, uh, the psalm that we just sang didn't, if you're just singing along, it's, it's sometimes difficult. And when you're reading the psalms, you have to ask yourself sometimes, whose voice is speaking right now? You know, who, whose voice? Uh, because psalms switch sometimes, right? It's, it's, sometimes the psalmist is speaking. Uh, sometimes the crowd is speaking. Sometimes God all of a sudden speaks. You know, they, they, they give words to God in, in the, in the uh, middle of a psalm. Um, and in Psalm 22, the, the psalm begins with David, or in our, in our case, Christ, um, 
speaking, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and, and then recalling God's faithfulness to Israel when they cried out, God, why, why aren't you, why aren't you coming to help me? Um, and then, and then reckoning with his, um, it's, it's, it's interesting to sing. It's funny to read things and then to sing them. Um, but you know, I'm not a man, I'm a worm. It's funny to sing that line. You know, I am no man, I am a worm. Um, uh, it's the beauty of singing the Psalms. There's no, uh, there's no praise chorus I know that has that in it, but maybe that maybe there is, or even hymns. I don't know. Um, but I'm a worm, right? And 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 here Jesus is taking up our wormness, right? He's taking up our lowness, our sin, and and owns it and takes himself. But then then another voice pops in to that psalm, the voice of the crowds, the ones who are wagging their heads and and pointing their fingers and saying, "Well, let's see, you know, he trusted in God. Let's see what his God does for him." Uh, that kind of mocking and reproach we hear. That's not the psalmist speaking. That's the, the psalmist recording what people say. And we're saying to David, oh, look at the great David in such a difficult position. Well, yeah, he try, he puts all his trust in God. Let's see what God does for him. But of course, most of all, Jesus, he trusted in God. Let God deliver him then. So these are, these are brought to us in, uh, in that psalm. And I want us to think in this text now as we look forward to Christ about the things that happened to our Lord. And I, I want to focus on two, but we'll, we'll kind of look at four of them. So first, I want to think about him being judged. Then I want to think about him being oppressed. Then I want to think about him being cut off. And then I want to think because it turns to his burial here. It's interesting that they throw this in and and the, the, we'll look at the burial because it's a, a little maybe change in the music, the tone of the background music, and, and sets us for what we know is coming. But let's just think about first the fact that this, this portion of the text reminds us that our Lord was judged. Now, um, in, in the, the text here, we have an odd little uh, translation in verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Again, the ESV will say, by oppression and judgment, he was taken. That's kind of a strange thought. What does it mean he was taken from prison? by a, in, Unless he's dragged out on his way to crucifixion. But the point here is that our Lord was taken and he was judged and then oppressed. But I want us just to reflect on this for a moment because... Think about the fact that our Lord was judged. C.S. Lewis, there's a collection of essays of his called God in the Dock. That, that God sits in the dock as the, uh, in the courthouse, being examined, having, having the creature point his finger at God and, and lay accusations at his feet. And ask him to give an account. That in some sense, that's what we want to do with God. You feel it come out in times of real crisis when we begin to ask. And we're not the only ones. Biblical characters do this. David does it in Psalm 22. God is in the dock, if you will. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I have a few questions for you, sir. Why did you forsake me? Why did you leave me thus? 
That as human beings, we have some questions for God. And we'd like to see him in the dock so that he can answer our questions and answer our accusations. Now, to say it that way feels awkward. But the scriptures do do it. Again, David does it in Psalm 22. David does it again in Psalm 42. Habakkuk does it. In Habakkuk, it's even stronger. The prophet Habakkuk says, I'm bringing you to court. I am filing a lawsuit, a covenantal lawsuit against you that I would like you to answer for how this is just that your people are being dragged off into judgment. Very, very strong language. So I, and on one hand, I take comfort in that because it's placed right there in the Bible for us. Now we have to question whether it's wise to do that, how to do that, how the Lord responds when we do that. But I am fascinated by the fact that God himself allows it to happen. He does not strike Habakkuk dead. He interacts with Habakkuk in them. Now he might have some strong, you know, some strong words for him. Job himself, right, is finally pushing back. And we understand as Job is pushing and, and arguing with his, his challengers that no, I haven't done anything wrong, but he, he begins to seek the Lord and say, Lord, you know, uh, not, not the strong language of Habakkuk, like I have a divine lawsuit, but, but starting to wrestle with God and his complaints and his questions start to get accusatory and the Lord humbles him at the end of Job and then restores him, strengthens him, raises him up. The Lord allows himself. It, it is amazing to me that as Israel's traveling from, from Egypt to Canaan and they grumble and they make accusations against God and they want answers from God, that God doesn't just smoke them. Leave a, leave a smoking crater right, right there in, in Israel from those who would raise questions against God. He's God for crying out loud. He's God. Like you do not even have a molecular existence without him. I, I, I tell my students this, like when we're talking about, uh, about the fact that God is of a different order of being than we are. It's not just that God's greater than we are. He's of a different order of being. He is being. I'm starting to sound like Justin here now. You're gonna get you're gonna get some deep philosophical stuff. He he is he is a certain level of being, and we are not. We are contingent, we are dependent being. Like we do not have, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but we do not have the ability to exist within ourselves, not just live. Like, oh, yes, I need food, I need air, I need water. I know, I know, that, and that's, that shows a weakness. God does not need water. God does not need air. But, but even beyond that, if you, if you don't have water or air, you die, but you don't cease to exist. Your body is still there. Your soul is still there. It's with the Lord. Okay, the body and soul are separated, but they're still there. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about existing. You don't have the ability to exist. You can't keep yourself existing. Only God can do that. And the reason you exist is sheerly because of him. You literally owe your very being to God. And yet we would complain against him and he wouldn't just smoke us right there. 
No, not that he doesn't bring his hand of judgment down. He does from time to time. People died in that wilderness. But it's amazing to me how much God endured of judgment from his people. And this climaxes in the incarnation as Jesus comes and allows himself literally to go in the dock. He literally is God in the dock. He literally sits in the chair in which he is going to be judged by you. We, the creature, the measly creature who owe our entire existence to him, in him, Paul will say to the, to the Athenians, in him, we live and move and have our very being. And we, Judge him. By judgment, he is turned out to oppression. Whose judgment? Now, we know ultimately God is bringing this judgment on our behalf. I mean, while, while the, these people are running around with their hair on fire trying to figure out how to get Jesus and take care of him and how do we, you know, all these things behind the scenes of how do we get the Romans to actually do it? Wait, Pilate's not going to do it? Okay, no, 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 Pilate, you have to do it. You know, it'd be a shame if Caesar ever heard that you let this guy go. I mean, all this shenanigans is going on behind the scenes to get this done. And behind all the chaos is God sovereignly going, it's going to get done. God is going to judge his son for you. God is going to allow his son to go in the dock and, and get you to move out. He's going to sit in your seat. He's going to take your place. God is literally going to go in the dock. That's all right. You got credit because you gave me glasses. So you're, you get it. You got, you got as, as, yeah, exactly. As, as, as Richard Pratt would say to us, you know, you get three free sins or Steve Brown, Steve Brown, Steve Brown would say, you know, you get three free sins. So you got, you got some grace coming to um, for those listening on tape, it's a long story. Don't worry about it. Um, but I just want you to pause and reflect upon the, upon the fact that our God became flesh and sat in the dock and allowed his creatures to judge him and did not smoke them. Jesus allows Pontius Pilate to declare some judgment on him. He allows Caiaphas to pronounce judgment on him, and he is silent. He receives it. It's humbling. It's humbling, especially, not only just because we owe our complete being to him, so what word of judgment do we possibly have to cast upon him? But on top of that, we are the guilty ones. We are the ones who deserve to be in the dock. We are the ones, it, 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 we know it needs to be the other way around. His finger is pointing at us. Who are we to point the finger at him and say, why have you forsaken me? Why, have, why David is going to ask God why God has forsaken him? The same David who at moments in his life has forsaken his God is going to have the gall to say, why have you forsaken me? So first, he was judged. Just reflect on that. And secondly, and this just now, really these two go together, and they're together in the text. But he was oppressed. Or as we get in verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. 
So it's not just that he bears up under the accusations of his people, which we know, again, I don't want to, I don't want to just lower this down to the human level. He is doing this by the will of his father. And we know ultimately the father is passing judgment. It's not about Caiaphas. He's enduring the judgment of Caiaphas because, and of Pontius Pilate because he knows what he's about to do. But it's not just that he's judged, he's oppressed. He's afflicted. He's literally scourged. I mean, when we read Come to Holy Week and when we read about Good Friday, and it's uncomfortable. And if you've ever, if, if you've ever watched The Passion of the Christ, it's, it's almost like you have to, you can't watch it anymore. I don't know if you've seen it. But it's like when, I'm, I've said it before, when he finally dies in the movie, it's like relief. It is relief. I can't, I couldn't handle anymore. And I'm, and I'm watching a movie in the comfort of my house with an actor who I know is an actor and I couldn't handle anymore. I'm like, oh, finally. Just when he dies, it's just like, it's finished. Jesus bears up under this. He allows himself to be oppressed, scourged, mocked, whipped, the crown of thorns jammed into his head. His own creature spitting on him, slapping him. Oh, he's a prophet. Let's see if he can tell which one of us just did that. Having measly little Pontius Pilate act like he has any authority over him. Do you know who I am? (laughs) It's funny if it's not just so sad. But he's oppressed. And I think, I mean, when, again... We've wanted God in the dock for a long time. When we finally get our hands on him, we set him down and we tell him what we really think of him. But even more than that, I think what the, the scary, the scary thing about the death of our Lord is that we find out what we really wanted with God. And that is we want him dead. We, are, we want him dead. He's always gotten in the way. Right back to the Garden of Eden. You know, God is spoiling all the fun. And that's what Satan basically convinced Adam and Eve. And it didn't appear to take a lot of convincing, to be honest with you. All he had to say was, God knows the day you eat, you, you, that you will be like him. And that's all it took, apparently, for Eve to go, yeah. And get God out of the way because God is this barrier to me and sort of my fulfillment. And as I've said to you before, and I say it to my students all the time, what looks even sickly kind of innocent, oh, the eating of fruit and a little act of stupidity, it's not until you get to the cross that you see what was really going on in the Garden of Eden. It looks kind of innocent. In fact, you're going to say, really, God? You're going to plunge all of humanity into the hell of the curse that we've been dealing with for all these years because they ate fruit? No. It's just that you don't have eyes to see what the eating of that fruit really was. And the whole Old Testament is the, is the growth. I, I, the illustration I've used before in this very church is, is the idea of, of strep throat. When, when Emma would get strep throat and the doctor would take that little swab off the back of the throat and put it you know, in, a, in a little Petri dish. And, and whatever the bacteria is, is not big enough for the doctor to see they can't see it under the microscope. So what they have to do is swab the back of the neck and, and put it in the Petri dish and then let it grow 
over a couple of days, that culture grow. And then if indeed it's there, it grows to a place where they can see, oh, hey, and they give us a call and they say, hey, Emma's got strep throat because now I can see what was there, but I couldn't see. And that it's like it's like in the in the uh, in the eating of the fruit, you can't see what it is. But the whole Old Testament is the growth of the bacteria in the Petri dish that finally at Golgotha, finally in this inquisition of our Lord, finally in the crucifixion of our God, we see what the original bacteria was. It looked like eating fruit, but you know what it is? It's God. It's theodicide. It's killing God. That's really what the eating of the fruit was. And it's finally grown to the place where we can see it. This is what we want. God out of our way. I am the captain of my own destiny. And let's finally once and for all get him out of the way so we can be all we can be. Israel can be all she can be. Rome can be all Rome can be. And so he's oppressed by his creatures who, as Satan tempted us, want to be God ourselves. He's judged and he's oppressed. And we see it here. Israel oppressing her own God. Humanity oppressing its own creator. Only by the sheer mercy, by the way, of God. And how does our Lord handle it? In this beautiful language, which is picked up in the in the First Peter two language, right? Like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. It's the, you know now my soul is troubled. He says in John twelve. But what will I say? Father, deliver me from this hour. It's for this very hour I came. I came for this very thing. I came to sit in the dock. I came to receive all the accusation. I came to bear it all on my shoulders all of the sin, I came to be declared guilty. I came to be scourged. I came to be oppressed. I came to take upon myself all of the enmity of my people so that I may deal with it once and for all. And as a lamb before it shears is silent, so he went quietly, not resisting. Even though in a moment he could have called down legions of angels. The reserve that he had to be able to bear this and go to the cross and to deal with it. And what happened to him? He was slaughtered. He was slaughtered. Right? He was a lamb led to the slaughter, we're told in verse 7. It's strong language. It's very graphic language. We don't like saying that. But that's the language we're given in the text. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Our almighty God takes the form, the metaphor, the picture, the image for our Lord. The King of kings, the Lord of glory is a lamb, the weakest of all creatures. And he's led like a lamb to its slaughter. And this brings us to the language of his being cut off. He was taken by oppression and judgment. And who will declare this to his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And this is why I chose um, 
uh, the Old Testament reading of Genesis 17 today, of this whole text on circumcision, the circumcision of this, the circumcision. It's interesting that God makes circumcision the sign of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant. What we, don't, what we didn't get to read in chapter uh, uh, 17 was what had just happened in chapter 16. In chapter 16, Abraham sins with Hagar and they have Ishmael. And we, we hear him in that text in Genesis 17 talking about Ishmael. But he has Ishmael because God had come to him and to his wife Sarai and said, I'm going to give you a child and you're going to be the father of a great nation. You know the whole deal. But years went on and no child. And Abraham starts thinking to himself, hmm, uh, I guess I got to take this into my own hands. And so he and Sarah come up with this ingenious plan to have Abraham sleep with her maidservant. And boom, you get Ishmael. And no sooner is Ishmael born. The Lord says, whoa, whoa, who's this? You know, kind of like God coming and looking for Adam in the garden. What are you doing hiding in the bushes? Why are you wearing fig leaves? Who told you you were naked? What's going on here? And who's this child? What's happening here? I thought I told you I'd give you a child. What are you doing? And immediately, oh boy, it seems like a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was a bad idea. So let's have a little talk. Now, I want to give you a sign to remind you of my promises. Okay, Lord, where do you want me to put the sign? Yeah, uh, let's talk about that. I want the sign right at the point of the problem. Okay, we're going to, I want the sign to be a perpetual reminder to you that I'm the one that's going to give you a son. Your salvation, your inheritance, your glory is going to come from me. And so I want you to be circumcised. And this image of cutting off, he tells him, he says, be holy and blameless before me now. And here's the sign of the covenant. You're going to cut off the flesh of your foreskin. And, and Isaiah picks that language up here in the fact that he was cut off. He becomes the unclean thing that is to be cut off from us. Him. Purity incarnate. He is purity. And yet he identifies himself. And again, this takes us back to 2 Corinthians 5. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we through him might become the righteousness of God. And this is why Paul can say in Colossians chapter 2 to Gentiles who are not physically circumcised in the flesh, in Christ you have received circumcision. Because Christ has become for you. Christ has taken from you all of that which is unclean. And then when he went to the cross, he himself was cut off like the flesh of the foreskin, cut off and thrown away. Representing the, the removal of all that was unclean so that you might be holy and pure. I mean, again, you talk about a low and degrading image. And yet, our Lord, as he goes to the cross, is doing that very thing. I remember R.C. Uh, Sproul saying, you know, really was the first one that really just made me reflect on that language in 2 Corinthians 5, that he who knew, knew, knew no sin became sin. 
Like it's not just like, well, legally he and you know the sin was imputed to him. And I'm not denying that, but Paul doesn't use that language. He he identifies Christ with the sin, that he wore it, he owned it, he took it. Obviously, he himself was pure, or else he could not bear our sin. But but the identification. So how we can't speak of this in gross enough terms. If if like the flesh of foreskin is gross to you. And the idea of him bearing your sin is not as good. That's a that's a that's a nicer way of saying it. Okay, he he bore our sin rather than he he was cut off like the flesh of foreskin. You have too high a view of sin. Like you don't that it should, that the the be, cutting off being cutting off like a the the flesh of foreskin and circumcision should be the better way of saying it. Should be like oh thank you for putting it that way. But we, we, we just don't recognize how ugly our sin is. But Jesus was cut off from the land of the living for us. He became, he, he, he became like that. You, you'll, remember, you'll remember in Exodus 4 when Moses fails to circumcise his child and the Lord comes, the Lord comes after him to kill him. That's how serious this was. Because this became the picture of the covenant. This was the training wheels, if you will, to prepare you for what you're going to see at Golgotha. And if you're not circumcised, you're out. You can't have any part of this covenant if you're not being circumcised. Because you know what we are as the people of God? He's telling Moses, we're the circumcision people. We're the people who know we're unclean, but who by God's grace have that which is unclean cut off and removed from from our bodies. And that's who we are. And when Moses didn't do it, God comes to kill him and Zipporah whips out a knife and circumcises the child and takes the skin and throws it at Moses. There's a gross picture for you to have for the rest of your day. Throws it at Moses and says to him, what are you doing? Are you trying to get us killed? And Jesus becomes that for us spare us and to keep us from the judgment of God he bears the knife on himself cut me off and he takes that for us this is what's happening as he's being beaten this is what's happening as he's being nailed to the cross he is being cut off so that we might live and now again we are the circumcision people not because of some physical circumcision. That's what Paul, that's the point Paul makes in Colossians 2. Now we've been circumcised not with a circumcision done with hands, but by the circumcision that comes through the death of Christ. And this is the mistake the Jews made, is they just were confident in their physical circumcision. But again, like we all tend to do, right? We, we, we can't see what the Lord's doing. And that's why the prophets tell the Israelites, it's not the circumcision of the flesh God wants in you. He wants the circumcision of your heart. He wants what is truly impure cut away. So we are the circumcision people because Christ is our circumcision. Christ is our salvation. He was cut off so that we might be spared from the wrath and the judgment of God. He was judged for us. He was oppressed for us and by us. And he was cut off for us. And then finally, and here I just brighten things a little bit. 
Because as I said, when when finally, if you've ever watched The Passion of the Christ, and I'm not, if you haven't, I'm not necessarily recommending it. Some people do have a problem with depicting Jesus, and I get that. I do understand some of the perhaps biblical theological problems with that. But I will confess nonetheless that as I watched it again when he died, there was this relief because you knew it was finished. And now nothing but glory. And in verse 9, um, so back in verse 8, for the transgression of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He's, he's laid there like a piece of meat on the, on the ground after his crucifixion, having had the, having had the, the Roman centurion spear him through to confirm his death. But then he is given the grave of Joseph of Arimathea and with some dignity and with the richness, if you will, of Joseph, he is given this place of honor where he might lay. And for a moment, we get a sense of something, a change of brightness and of life, even in the silence now. You talk about as a lamb being led silently. So also here, Jesus lays silently in the grave. And yet, Isaiah, in telling us this, giving us this little detail, which is one of those confirming facts that comes true in the life of Jesus. And you go, that as we see this, indeed, there is a tone and a little hint that something great is coming. And indeed, something is great that's coming. And we won't get into that because we'll save that for Easter Sunday. But we know the greatness of that which is to come. Because while we can feel bad about the oppression that we wrought on our Savior, the judgment that we declared on him, the cutting off that we participated in unwittingly, behind all that, we know it is in fact our very salvation. Jesus did not have this thrust on him. Jesus bore it willingly. I came for this very purpose. Jesus came to do this in order to save us. So that having been crucified, having been buried, having been raised from the dead, he might bestow eternal life upon us. And that, even through our sorrow, even through our feeling guilty for the, for the condemnation of our Lord, nonetheless can rejoice over the grace and goodness of God. What kind of God does this? What kind of God endures this for the sake of his creatures? As the Psalms say, there is no God like Jehovah. No God indeed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your suffering servant, our Lord Jesus Christ, who we did not esteem. I say we, and by this I mean humanity, but Lord, we we did not look upon him We were not attracted to him. We were not impressed by him. In fact, he got in the way of our success, we thought. And Father, when we finally could get our hands on him, we threw him in the dock. We crucified him. Yet, he was cut off for us. He bore our guilt and our sin and our oppression so that he might be cut off for us and for our transgressions so that we, through his death, might become the circumcised, the pure of heart, 
new men and new women, new creatures in Christ and for his glory. We thank you for that. Refresh us this morning in the sweetness of the gospel. Remind us of the ugliness of our sin that we might rejoice in the victory, the gracious victory that is ours through our Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.